I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, purely and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wang. God bless you. <laughs> What do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movies, music, and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. Hey, Chris. Hello, Nick. How are you? I'm good. I have been thinking about Escape from New York all week. We did an earlier episode with Cool Raj Rocks, great guest who actually saw that film in theaters. And even though I had been just going over that movie and reading interviews and stuff like that leading up to that episode, after we did it, it just made me want to go back and watch it again. So I did. Have you seen Escape from New York again since we recorded the last time? Uh, I have not, but I mean, I've seen it like probably... In the last six months, I've probably seen it about three times. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those movies that I liked it, as we talked about on the last episode, I liked it since I was a kid, since I just taped it off a of TV and watched it so many times that way. Hadn't seen it for a while. Had so much fun going back to it for the show. And I just, I, you know, I, I'm not like you, right? Like, you're one of those guys who can watch the same movie multiple times and like, the same couple of week period Does, am i mischaracterizing you or is that correct uh i don't know if i'll do them back to back like that soon but i definitely have a habit of watching movies like multiple times it's rare i watch a movie once unless i really don't like it so yeah I'm all about giving everything a second chance. Yeah, which is another thing I like about you as a film fan, because I generally won't do that. But even with something I really like, like Escape from New York, um, I hadn't seen it in a really long time. And even when I, I re rewatch something after a long time like that, I generally don't want to revisit it again for quite a while. And with these Carpenter films, it's been interesting. Like, I've watched Halloween more than I ever have. I saw The Fog twice in two months or something like that. So that's a lot more rewatching. You know, I like to always be seeing new movies there's my letterbox lists and netflix lists and everything like that they're just endless so it's like i gotta get through this backlog somehow i don't really have time to go back and uh, and see films that i already know that i like but for some reason with this one i just i wanted to live in that world again for another hour and 40 minutes or whatever that's that's pretty awesome man so i mean as we're going through uh john carpenter's pictures here I mean, this one's at, the, I believe you said in the last show, this one's at the top of the list for you so far out of all, or no, Halloween was also, um, this one and Halloween are your two favorites so far. Uh, that is not what I said. This is my third, actually. <laughs> I'm giving you crap because you don't know my exact list of ranking of Carpenter movies. Oh, and I, I, <laughs> and I, I haven't necessarily done that, right? But I do, I think I have a pretty solid top three. So it goes The Thing, Halloween, Escape from New York. And as I said last episode, I would love for that to change. Like, it would be awesome if I see something that I've never seen before. There's, you know, about four or five more that I have not seen uh, that, that takes a place on that list. But 
Um, I don't know. Those three are really, really good ones, and uh, and I'm not sure anything's gonna dethrone that. But yeah, I mean, it's uh, this is definitely up there for me, and always has been. And as we talked about, you know, like movie snapshots on the show, where you think of an image or you think of one particular scene or a moment from a movie, and that's how you remember that movie. Um, Escape from New York is kind of my Carpenter snapshot in a lot of ways, right? Like you would think it would be one of those films, one of those two films that I like better. But when I think of John Carpenter as a a filmmaker and when I think of his career, I think Escape from New York is the movie that I just sort of flash to. Like the image in my head is of Snake Plissken uh, just sort of prowling around in New York. Yeah, I can see that totally. Do you have one? Do you have a uh, like a Carpenter snapshot? A Carpenter snapshot? Um, I I would honestly think I would be leaning more towards... uh, just Michael Myers, probably. Okay. You know, um, as as a character, but that's a good question that I sh- I should ponder. I mean, that's the first thing that came to mind. So I'm gonna just I'm just gonna roll with that. But certainly Snake Plissken, and um, I mean, in a weird way, just just Kurt Russell in general comes to mind when I think of uh, you know as as a snapshot when I think of John Carpenter because they did so many freaking movies together yeah well i don't know i mean for me certainly for this period of kurt russell um but but then the hateful eight comes out a couple of years ago and i love that movie so so very much and he's so good in that and so now i have like a young kurt russell snapshot and i have an older (laughs) kurt russell snapshot i gotta watch those santa claus movies that he's in i guess i'll wait till next christmas for those so let's take a look at this i mean i do you remember on our old show um talking movies we did an episode on used cars yes really fun movie Uh, that i had never seen before and you hadn't either right that's right and i only bring it up because i'm trying to figure out you know we know he did elvis in 79 um pulling up his filmography here where this falls in his film. yeah this was right at so escape from new york was the movie he made directly after used cars Yes. And looks like before that, like, I'm just trying to put into perspective, like, what Kurt Russell's, like, star power was at this point in his career. Probably not that much, right? Well, I want to talk about that, actually, because I had not seen, I mean, like... When you read about Escape from New York, there's all this material about how Kurt Russell really, really wanted to do this film to shed an image that he had in Hollywood of being this, like, squeaky clean Disney star. And I don't know, maybe it's just because it was before my time or something like that, but I have never seen, like, literally not once have I ever seen one of the films he appeared in as a child actor or the stuff he did when he was a teenager and a young adult. Like, he was in a, a series. It was like a franchise for Disney um, where one of the films was called The Computer Wore Tennis Shoes, and I believe there were two sequels to that, and they were like these PG-rated Disney comedies. They were fairly successful. I mean, if you're going to make three movies, it must have done pretty well for itself. And he was just like gunning hard to shed that image. So it's kind of interesting just as a, a modern viewer of this film and, you know, someone who grew up in the, the late 80s, early 90s. I don't ever remember seeing any of those films or hearing about that. Like when I thought of Kurt Russell back then, right, like when I was, you know, just a young movie fan growing up watching movies on TV, it was still the same thing, right? Like I was thinking of him as the Escape from New York guy, the Big Trouble in Little China guy, um, I believe... 
I think it was him in Overboard, the comedy Overboard. I think it was uh, Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, who later was his wife. I remember seeing that movie a lot when I was a kid also. Hmm. I'm looking at this list right now, and it's, I mean, I've got to say I'm largely unfamiliar with uh, his work in the 60s and 70s, pretty much. I'm right about uh, that, though, right? It's it's mostly the Disney movies? Looks like it. You've got, um, well, <laughs> that's funny, the uncredited cameo as Elvis, ironically, in It Happened at the World's Fair. I think we brought that up during the show. Um, Guns of Diablo, Follow Me, Boys. Uh, Mosby's Marauders, the one and only genuine original family band. <laughs> Those movies sound so sixties and seventies, don't they? Hold on, there's more. The horse in the gray flannel suit. <laughs> the computer wore tennis shoes. I there you go. You, that yeah. was sixty nine. The barefoot executive. Fool's Parade. Now you see him. Now you don't. Charlie and the Angel. Super Dad. The strongest man in the world. The Captive, The Largest Drive 2, Used Cars, <laughs> Escape from New York. So, yeah, this is like a a radical shift. <laughs> I feel like even Used Cars at that point was just like, yeah, give me a vulgar R-rated comedy. I can't do this. What, what was the horse one? The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit? The Horse in the Gray Flannel Suit, I 1968. I kind of want to see that movie now. It's probably not so good. Um, we have a lot more to talk about about Kurt Russell and Escape from New York. I do want to just put a little bit more of the trailer uh, so we can listen to a little bit of John Carpenter and just sort of get in the mood for the film again. So we will be right back and we will continue this discussion very soon. New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control, they think. All right, we are back. You just heard a little bit of the great score for this movie, which uh, I want to talk about later in the show. I was watching a review of this film that was really critical of John Carpenter's soundtrack, and I just can't seem to understand that. Uh, I, I absolutely love that. You know, I, I'm not the sort of Carpenter apologist where I think everything he's ever done has been brilliant, whether we're talking about uh, film or music, but this is like one of my favorite scores, and, uh, and I really like it a lot. We'll get to that later, though. I want to come back to Kurt Russell, because as we were saying earlier, this is a film where it was kind of a radical departure from what he had done before. And just in, in reading about the, the pre-production and the backstory of all this, um, I guess he didn't really want to be Elvis. He did that film because he knew it was going to be a huge success. He knew people were going to see it. Um, he knew that that would be a good step in his career. He wanted to work with John Carpenter, but um, I, I read a, a couple of quotes from him or, or just some, some background material on this that said basically he took that job not because he was just dying to play Elvis on screen, but more because he knew that would be a, a springboard to bigger things, and it certainly was. And he's great in that movie, as we talked about uh, on the show a while back. He gives it his all as Elvis, but um, with Escape from New York, you've got a film that not only is he giving 100% to this performance, but his heart is really in it, right? Like, this is something he really wanted to do, and I think that's really obvious throughout this film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it doesn't look like he was <clears throat> phoning it in by any means, but that's a 
really interesting point you bring up about Elvis because God, I mean, it, it I mean, he put his heart and soul into that. Um, at least it, it appears that way. But I could see how that would be really exciting to um, be able to just like completely shift your modality, get into you know a story and a movie that is radically different than anything you've done before, and be able to actually be a character that's that's uh, radically different. So yeah, it's apparent on the on the screen, man. It, it 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 looks like he's having a great time doing it. See, I think so too. And like I've been reading a lot of critical reviews of this movie just because you know, again, as we've talked about on the show, I really really like this film. It's one of my favorite Carpenter films. I, I think you and Raj, when we talked about it on the last episode, you're both big fans of it also. And you know, sometimes it's just important to to take a look at the other side of the story and see what what the critical opinions are. And a lot of people tend to not like his performance in this film. They say it's uh, oh. somewhat one note, and he's kind of not phoning it in, like you said, but more. Or just doing this sort of badass, gruff, anti-hero thing. Um, it's definitely a riff on Clint Eastwood. John Carpenter actually would have liked to have seen Clint Eastwood. You know, he kind of wrote this role of Snake Plissken with a Clint Eastwood type in mind. I've read that in a few places, so... You know, I guess you could say if you wanted to be critical of Kurt Russell in this film that he's just kind of doing a caricature of of the spaghetti Western anti-hero kind of character. But I don't know. I mean, something about the way he does it. I mean, yes, it's kind of a one note character, right? Like he is just sort of uh, like I said, he's an anti-hero and doesn't have time for anything other than uh, than his own basically <laughs> survival he's just out to to save his own ass uh, however he can and he doesn't really even seem all that interested in that right like snake Plissken is uh, you know he doesn't take the suicide option at the beginning of the movie where they basically uh, the the loudspeaker in the prison says if you'd like to kill yourself you can go ahead you know alert the uh, the manager or whatever and we can take care of that for you um, but he doesn't really seem like he wants to live all that much either um he kind of just goes through this world and gets by minute to minute but i don't know i mean i think there's <laughs> just something in this performance and something in the presence you know maybe it's not even the performance itself it's just the way that he dominates in a close-up or something like that um the way he wears this kind of like almost silly looking costume and makes it look really cool you, know, you can say that about a lot of people in this movie so, you know, I, I tend to disagree with those reviews, I think. I, I, I think it is a really good performance, and I do think, you know, like we were saying, his heart is definitely in it. Like, this is a role he very badly wanted to play, and it's a role that I think he just, he takes it and runs with it. And to let Snake Plissken be the way he is in this film and uh, and sort of not give him a love interest, I feel like if you made Escape from New York now or, you know, in, in the past 10 years or something like that, at some point in this movie, there'd be a little kid that would like tag along with him and, you know, he would be his sort of gruff anti-hero self about it and he would act like he doesn't actually like the kid, but then he would save him at some point in the movie because you got to have that sort of more sentimental kind of, you know what I'm saying? Like, I feel like this movie would be so different. <laughs> if you made it in 2019 for so many reasons. Well, I'm still waiting for that Robert Rodriguez reboot, Nick. So uh, we'll see if that happens. <laughs> I, you know what? I could live without a Robert Rodriguez reboot. Although I would love to see, you know, I mean, I, I hate to say it, but like another sequel to this that takes the original a little bit more as the inspiration than uh, than Escape from L.A. did. But 
Oh, you're going to. It's called Ghosts of Mars. Okay. Well, um, that that is one of those Carpenter films I haven't seen. Maybe that'll be the one. Maybe that'll dethrone this. That that'll be my number three. Maybe it'll be my number one. Who knows? Um, interesting just sort of casting stuff about this movie. So, you know, like I was saying, Carpenter wanted a Clint Eastwood type. Obviously, probably wasn't gonna get Clint Eastwood at this point. You're talking about the early eighties. He's already gone off onto his own directorial career. He's got the Dirty Harry franchise. He is likely not to appear in this low budget budget of a movie. So uh, I think Carpenter makes a great choice with Kurt Russell. The studio, however, wanted Charles Bronson for this role, who, again, is on kind of a tear in the action movie world. This is like kind of right in the middle of the Death Wish franchise, which those are fairly successful movies. I believe there was five of them before that that was all said and done. He had obviously been in a, a number of popular Westerns also. I mean, he was kind of another quintessential screen badass, but he was a little bit older at this point, and, uh, and I definitely... It would be interesting to see this movie with Charles Bronson as Snake Plissken, but I don't know. There, There is a sort of youthfulness about Kurt Russell that I think works a lot better for this role than, uh, than somebody of the age of Charles Bronson at the time would have been. Yeah. How about Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that was another choice also, another one that was up for consideration. And he was about the right age at the time. I mean, I, Tommy Lee Jones now probably couldn't have pulled it off, but I could maybe see that back then. Yeah, that's interesting. I actually just looking that up right now that Avco Embassy, yeah, looks like so they were they wanted Bronson or Tommy Lee Jones. Uh, yeah, I could picture I could definitely picture Charles Bronson doing this movie. Absolutely. But since I've seen it so many times and it's just ingrained in my mind like it I I don't know. <laughs> I, I I can't imagine his performance being more likable than what Kurt Russell ended up doing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, I think it would have been a little more of one note. And uh, and you know, as, as we were saying earlier, a lot of people think Kurt Russell is one note in this movie. Uh, another choice was, uh, another consideration was Nick Nolte, who was... Oh, boy. Yeah, that would have been interesting. I mean, I think as he got older as an actor, he got a little bit more grizzled and more Snake Plissken-like. I don't know what he really was like back then. Although, I believe it was 1982 that 48 Hours comes out, and he can definitely do the action hero thing, but... It's, uh, you know, like, especially with these, like, blockbuster action movies, right? I mean, I, I always, the, the example that, that always comes to my mind is uh, the original choice to play Indiana Jones in Raiders of the Lost Ark was Tom Selleck. And Tom Selleck was, uh, he was a fun actor. I mean, he probably could have headlined that movie and it probably, you know, with Spielberg as uh, at the directorial helm of that and with the script that they had and the special effects that they had, I think Raiders of the Lost Ark still would have been a great movie with Tom Selleck as Indiana hmm. Jones. But you got Harrison Ford in there and it just takes it to this whole other level. And now you cannot really think of that movie without Harrison Ford in that starring role. And of course, that went on to be a franchise. You know, uh, the other one that, that pops into my head is Die Hard, one of my other favorite action movies. I mean, probably Die Hard and Raiders are, uh, are my top two in that genre of all time. And there were all kinds of choices before Bruce Willis signed on to that. And once he did, they basically organized the movie. They kind of rewrote things to, to support who he was as an actor and the way he could do the wisecracks and sort of be a little bit more of a blue-collar hero. Like, at one point, they were considering Arnold Schwarzenegger for Die Hard and... For me, that wouldn't have worked in that film because John McClane is supposed to be a little bit of an everyman kind of hero. So 
it's kind of interesting. I mean, all these coulda, shoulda been kind of scenarios where all these iconic movies and these iconic characters played by other people and who knows how successful things would have been and uh, who knows how that would have changed the consciousness. Like, everyone knows Snake Plissken. Even if you've never seen this movie, you can picture Kurt Russell in the eye patch and the, and the jacket and uh, you have a pretty good idea of who he is and what this movie's all about. I'm surprised they didn't go for Gary Busey on this one. Uh, <laughs> can you imagine that Gary Busey in a John Carpenter's Escape from New York? Well, pretty funny. that's another one though. I mean, Gary Busey was kind of a, a more clean-cut type of actor for a long time, and uh, and then moved on to uh, action movies in the '80s, and then went through his crazy phase that I guess maybe he's partially still in, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this could have been an earlier career detour for him, right? Like, he could have done the uh, screen psychopath thing a little bit earlier. I mean, you know, and, and the more unhinged Snake Plissken could have been interesting, I guess. <laughs> more unhinged. I like that. Oh, boy. So where do we go from here? I mean... Well, I want to talk about... We kind of glossed over... Not that we glossed over it. We talked about it a little bit last episode, but the scene where Snake sits down with Hauk at the beginning of the movie is so important. And we talked about it a little bit, but I think I, I want to get a little further into that just because it's such a, a really well-done scene and... This movie doesn't really take a lot of time to have two characters sit down and just talk to each other and feel each other out the way that you get in this scene. It doesn't really happen again through the rest of the movie. And Lee Van Cleef as Hauk is so good, and he's not in this much. I believe he was only on set for like a day or two of shooting. But this is like one of those classic two-shot kind of confrontations in the beginning of this movie that really sets the tone for everything. And, and I feel like we get to know Hauk pretty well in this scene, even though we don't see too much of him later on. Yeah, he's definitely an important character. I mentioned in the last episode, those, those are some of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because it's just it's setting up the stakes and there's that, you know, there's that tension between them. And he's like totally busting on Snake the whole time, you know? He's like... He keeps like he keeps rubbing it. He's like he's like yeah, the human race, something you don't give a shit about, <laughs> you know. And and uh, well, and Snake himself, he's talking about the president and like you know the president's escape pod has gone down. He's like I don't give a fuck about the president. Yeah. Um, when he first says it, I love. Uh, there's a great Kurt Russell moment in that scene where Hauk basically explains the situation. The president has been kidnapped, and he says, "President of what?" <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah, just yeah. this like. His defiance, his attitude in that scene is just kind of infectious. Um, this is a very sort of punk rock kind of movie. It's a very anti-establishment kind of movie. And that scene sets it up so perfectly. Yeah, I mean, we're, you, we, we mentioned how Watergate was a little bit of an inspiration uh, to Carpenter's writing process on this. Um, certainly the police state, all of the high-tech stuff in this movie at the time which was high you know considered to be high tech all the computers um so yeah i mean i wonder what it was like like you know another thing i was thinking that you mentioned that i was really impressed by because i watched some of the bonus uh features on the blu-ray was the uh the wireframe animations and the the creation of the city itself was all like made out of like 
like basically a Lego set or something. It's like models. Yeah, it's a lot of miniature work and a lot of, I think, very, very good miniature work. I mean, even watching this film today and in, in a, on a Blu-ray and a 4K print of this or something like that, like a lot of movies from this period don't hold up in that regard because they just didn't have that level of detail, you know, that pixel-perfect 4K kind of HDR detail that we see now in a nice sort of release of one of these films. Um, sometimes the special effects, just because back then you didn't have to have that sort of photorealism in your special effects and you could still get away with it. Um, you know, there are things in this film that are obviously fake that look awfully good. I mean, a, a lot of the like the approach into the city when uh, when Snake is in the glider and we get these beautiful sort of swooping crane shots of the city. That's not an actual city. Um, that's just really good model miniature work there. But uh, but the wireframes, I think, are unbelievable. I actually watched that sequence again a couple of times. And I mean, just the, the level of work that must have gone into that to sort of, as we talked about on the, the previous episode, just to make something that looks like computer graphics that is not computer graphics. I mean, that's that's just mind blowing to me. Yeah, it's it's incredible that the, the amount of talent that these people have. And uh, it's also weird that James Cameron was uh you know, involved in this picture with some of the effects and stuff like that. I think it's very um, cool that Roger Corman studio involvement in this. So Roger Corman, of course, the most prolific and uh, one of the most successful B-movie people of all time. Uh, this producer that basically when it came to low budget in Hollywood, he was your guy. And because this was a fairly low budget movie, it was under $10 million budget wise. They couldn't get George Lucas's team to do the special effects. So they got Roger Corman's team to do the special effects and so many amazing filmmakers, so many really talented people like Jonathan Demi, Martin Scorsese, they all came up through the Corman system. And, uh, and James Cameron is another one of them. There's a movie I want you to see from 1981 called Galaxy of Terror, and it's a really, really bad movie. Uh, it's basically an alien clone that was made um, same year as Escape from New York. It doesn't look nearly as good as Escape from New York in most scenes, but there is some special effects work by James Cameron in that film that is unbelievable and actually holds up to, to this day. And it's such a um, low-budget movie, and it just goes to show, I mean, nothing else in this movie works at all. Um, you know, part of it is just really gross, kind of gore for gore's sake kind of thing but some of the like landscape work and some of the the miniatures and the model work and that is just so good and you could tell <laughs> the special effects people and the production design people on this they are going places and nobody else on this is going places and uh, and cameron fans generally go back to that and look at that as, uh, as sort of a, a monumental work in his career because you know it's only his work on that film that stands out so um, I don't think that's true of Escape from New York. He does some really good work here, and uh, and there's sort of great contributions, like we were saying on the earlier episode. There's some great contributions from the production design team, sort of making this ruined city come to life. And something that we need to talk about on this episode is the amazing cinematography of Dean Cundey, who is, by this point, uh, basically a Carpenter regular. He goes on to, uh, you know much, much bigger movies than this, but I think he's an integral part of the Carpenter universe at this point because, you know, I can't imagine this film without Dean Cundey's cinematography, just like I can't really imagine it without Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. Yeah, he's kind of like, you know, Richardson is to uh, Tarantino. Sure. Like, he's been uh, the cinematographer there. It's funny, I was just reading here on Wikipedia about some of the filming for this, and since you brought up Dean Cundey, 
but man, I didn't realize that they basically did like it. According to this, they did like a nocturnal shoot for it. Basically, shooting starting at six a.m. Going going to sleep at seven when the sun would be coming up, and then wake up at five or six p.m. Depending on whether or not we had dailies, and by the time I got going, the sun would be setting. So for about two and a half months, I never saw daylight, which was really strange. That is crazy. Yeah, it's almost like a method kind of thing, right? Like if you are making a movie set in this sort of gritty nighttime ruined version of New York uh, and to to make it that way where you're actually not shooting day for night, but you're shooting at night, that must really just sort of get into your head a little bit. And I think that carries over. You know, this is it's kind of a dreamlike movie. It's kind of a trippy movie where. Not everything is clear right away, and and everything has this sort of surrealness to it. I I don't know. Am I crazy in saying that? No, not at all. Like, we get these sequences where Snake Plissken is kind of by himself, wandering through the city. And and again, those are some of my favorite parts of the movie, where we are sort of seeing this world through his eyes and, and just picking up the little details and things like that and then trying to get the lay of the land and everything. And I don't know, there, there's something so authentic in shooting this at night. Um, Kundi brought in lenses where you could shoot in extreme low light situations. And there are moments in this film where, you know, it's just like a fire that's lighting the scene and, and just a little bit of lighting and everything looks really good, right? Like when you talk about low budget movies from this period that are shooting at night, a lot of times the criticism is, I can't see what the hell is going on and in this film I never get that sense right like what we need to see we see and that's just the eye of a really good cinematographer sort of taking the reins of this and uh, and making it authentic and just making it feel it's a, it's a dark night of the soul yeah well it is a very the, the movie has a very unique aesthetic to it um I love it continuing with the uh the, the style of assault on precinct 13 um Halloween and the fog. I love the really long credit sequence at the beginning of this movie. <laughs> That's just like something about all of those movies have, you know, what three three to five minute um, credit sequences at the beginning, where we get like an entire song from top to bottom. Um, this is just black background, like we don't get any images behind it with just the the font and the credits coming on. Um, it kind of gets me pumped for the movie, you know, and I don't know, like, can you think of any other, are there other filmmakers out there that you've seen that so consistently have like really long credit sequences at the beginning of their films? I mean, there's probably some that do it, but I'm with you. I actually like a long credit sequence. I like the idea of a movie as an event, right? Like, it's not just get me into the story and get things started and get this over with. But I I almost, like you said, it does get me pumped for the movie. I like to sort of sit down and have a little, you know, not not a preamble, not like a foreword or an introduction. But, you know, I need to sort of get in the mindset of what the film is going to be and uh, hear a little bit of the score and just sort of you know it's it's like uh like you don't go directly to sleep right like if a movie is a dream so how am i going to explain this 
<laughs> like you don't go directly to sleep, right? Like you sort of pass through some stages before you start dreaming where, you know, your thoughts become a little bit more surreal and, and they're not sort of, you know, following in this completely linear logical order. And I like when that happens at the beginning of a movie, right? Like when you get a couple of minutes to just sort of relax your mind and sort of open yourself up to a, a movie. And, uh, and I've talked to people who think the opposite, right? Like, well, why do we need credit sequences? We get so many credits at the end of a movie. But I feel like a lot of modern films, they just sort of cut right to the chase and we don't get a second to just sort of focus, um, you know, the, the way something and, you know, this one. This one also has to do a little bit of world building with its credit sequence. So we get that prologue, essentially, that tells us what happened in this world and why New York has become a prison. Um Jamie Lee Curtis narrates that, as we were saying, and that helps a lot, too. I mean, particularly with a film like this, you need a little bit of backstory. There is some exposition that they're not going to be able to get out in the course of the film. So I think it's done really well here. It doesn't feel just like, you know, exposition for the sake of exposition. It feels like just a, a really nice bit of scene setting, the same way the, the opening credits of Star Wars do. I mentioned that on the last episode also, where you got that great text crawl in, uh, in A New Hope that just kind of gets you in the mood for this film. And then with that, of course, you get that amazing opening shot of the Star Destroyer. And then you're off and rolling. This one does something very similar to that, right? Like that opening sequence where the two guys on the raft try to escape the city. That tells you an awful lot about the world of Escape from New York. Yeah, yeah, they get blasted right <laughs> off the bat. I mean, yeah, that's that is uh, it's nuts. That really sets it up, man. Like people are so desperate to get out of there, and it's there. There is just there is that perimeter is uh, is held down. Um, so, a couple of the things I, I want to talk about here. Um, you had mentioned that you found a review from Roger Ebert, who gave this a um, like two and a half star rating, um, which is weird because as of now, this movie has like eighty five percent on Rotten Tomatoes or something like that. So, definitely. Um, positive reviews overall and uh listen i love roger ebert i love his reviews i know you do too i know he's not always right but what you had mentioned that before we started recording the show that you found the review was there anything in there in particular that you wanted to discuss or do you think that he was wrong about yeah, I mean, I think he was wrong about a lot of it. Um, I don't think he, he had the foresight to see what this movie would be, become. And I think he makes a really unfair comparison here. So, for example... Um he says, Escape from New York has the misfortune of being a merely good thriller in a summer when the standard has already been set by Raiders of the Lost Ark. And we've already talked about that that film a little bit on this episode. Uh, mm. You know, I'm a huge Raiders fan. I'm you know, That is one of my all-time favorite movies. I like that better than Escape from New York. But I don't really think that's a fair comparison to make because they're such different movies, right? Like, Raiders of the Lost Ark is... Um, basically Spielberg's tribute to the movie serials of old. So it's this sort of cliffhanger action flick with 
the absolute uh, pinnacle of Hollywood talent in terms of special effects working on it with a huge budget with Harrison Ford, this already established blockbuster movie star guy. He's Han Solo and he's already done two movies as Han Solo by the time Raiders of the Lost Ark comes out. So people know what they're getting out of him. Um, This is such a smaller, scrappier movie and he doesn't seem to appreciate that about it. Um, You know, the fact Hmm. that this was put together by... And I mean, Carpenter is established at this point also, but he's established as kind of a a lower tier just in terms of budget and influence and things like that. Like he's not Spielberg and uh, and he's not trying to be Spielberg. He's trying to be, you know, almost like I was saying before, trying to be a little bit more punk rock. And uh, and that sort of seems to escape Ebert's notice here. Um, He also, you know, like he, he criticizes the world building a little bit. He says something to the effect of it would be interesting if we could see how these people within the walled off city of New York actually live, how their daily lives are. Um, and I just don't think there's really time for that. I think the the pacing of it just doesn't really allow for that. And also, you know, I think if you think too much about certain aspects of this movie, it doesn't work. And he's just sort of not really willing to go with that. Wow, that is interesting. I've I don't believe I've ever read his review on this movie, but now I feel like I want to. I do remember seeing uh because I was shocked that he gave a really glowing review of Escape from LA, which everybody kind of universally thinks is just like a silly version of this movie. Um but we'll <laughs> I guess we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, well, I guess the less you like Escape from New York, the more open to Escape from L.A. you can be like Escape from L.A. is not going to be as much of a disappointment to you if you don't care about the original Snake Plissken movie. It's a good point. Yeah, that's a that's a very fair point. But yeah, and vice he, versa. He criticizes a number of things. He's not crazy about Kurt Russell in this film. Um, you know, he, uh, he says Russell is so determined to shake his Disney image that he goes whole hog with an eye patch, a three day beard and a growl so hoarse he seems to be moaning most of the time. I don't get that out of this movie, do you? <laughs> oh my God, that's harsh. That is harsh, man. Yeah, he says, uh, it's an interesting idea for a performance maybe, but nothing is done to give the character human qualities. So we're allowed to remain detached about his plight. I mean, that's true, but I think the detachment is part of who Snake Plissken is, right? We meet him in that opening scene that we were talking about where he says, I don't give a fuck about your president. I don't care about your system. Um, You know, he really has no real attachment to anyone in this film. There's no real love interest in this film. The one sort of moment where that might happen happen is uh is with kurt russell's real life wife season hubley and the chock full of nuts scene and she is immediately taken away probably killed off and there's absolutely no spark there um she might have a little bit of chemistry with him but he's not really displaying anything toward her and that's just sort of who he is you know it's uh he wants to get into this situation get out of it and and figure things out from there he doesn't really care about anybody's political causes i mean he doesn't really even hate the villain of this film because there's no reason for him to um you know the duke played by isaac hayes is just sort of an obstacle in his way it's not like someone he's out to kill out for revenge for or anything like that am i right am i mischaracterizing this movie I don't I don't think so. I think I'm on I'm on board with with all of your analysis so far. I mean, he's got 
previous history with the brain who works for the duke but as far as as snake plissken and the duke go there's not really even much animosity there right i mean snake plissken kind of becomes a a a fly in the ointment for this grand escape plan that the duke has but really i mean those two don't have a backstory together and and are just sort of opposed because they just both happen to be there and uh, and they're sort of at cross purposes through this movie but that's kind of how this works right like I, I don't really think Snake Plissken has an emotional attachment to anything. Totally not. He's like a nihilist or something, you know. Um, and you, you bring up a lot of good points there. I mean, look, it's like he doesn't really have any beef with the Duke. It's just that's the, the situation that they're in. And, uh, you, you know, he's on a mission. He's got to do what he's got to do. Um, well, Snake which, Plissken hates authority, right? Like he is, right. he's anti-authoritarian. And so, of course, he's going to clash with the police state that's outside of New York. And I guess maybe, I mean, if you want to sort of extrapolate a little bit, the Duke is as close to authority as you get within the city of New York. I mean, he basically is running things. So Snake probably hates that about him. But, you know, that's as far as it goes, really. I love I love the, the, the twist at the end of this movie. Or not the twist, but... I don't think we really discussed the specifics of how this movie ends on the previous episode, did we? Um, we talked a little bit about the the final action sequences, but not really, no. I love, like, because it really kind of encapsulates, like, so much of the story in this, in this movie. And I think what its influences were, um, the scene at the end with the president, when he's, like, finally freed... And, you know, he's about to give his speech and he's like, you know, he, Snake asks him the question about how he feels about people that died saving him. And he, and he just like is really not genuine about his answer, like such a classic uh, politician's answer to the question, you know, like he just like gives a little bit of a half hearted, you know, comment and. You know, Snake. Uh, Snake basically, it's revealed that when the president goes to play the tape that he got, it's um, it is obviously he switched the tapes, uh, and and a song starts playing, which is like just a big embarrassment, and then you know we see Kurt Russell walk away with with the actual tape that the president was going to play, and he just starts ripping it apart. That's that's very symbolic to his. Uh, anti-authoritarian character yeah what a great ending basically uh giving the middle finger to the whole system he undercuts this whole peace process which this thing is all about and yeah i mean this movie is highly distrustful of institutions and we see that through a lot of carpenter up to this point even um you know I, i think back to assault in precinct 13 a lot when i think of escape from new york because in some ways escape from new york is like a bigger badder more expansive version of that film where basically law and order has collapsed and uh, and the system doesn't work and even though one of the heroes of that film is a cop um, you know he is portrayed as different from all the other cops the rest of the police in Assault in Precinct 13 are pretty ineffectual and we get Austin Stoker's character who you know still believes in the system and still believes that he can do good but there's really not much more of that and then his uh, his foil in that film and uh, and who ends up being his ally is 
Napoleon Wilson, who is just straight up a criminal. Uh, he shows up in, in that precinct, and we don't know exactly what his backstory is, but we know he's probably killed some people and probably done some really <laughs> bad things, but he turns out to be the hero of that movie. I think there is a, a real direct parallel between Napoleon Wilson and Snake Plissken. Yeah, and that's that's the uh, there, you could one could also say maybe there's a correlation to be drawn between um, Charles Cipher's character and Hawk, right? Or or Hawk, not Hawk. Hawk. <laughs> I can never say that name right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like people in leadership positions do not really seem to, or or people in government, people in institutions, they don't really seem to work well in the Carpenter universe, right? Like even in Halloween, the reason Michael Myers is freed, is basically able to escape and go on his killing spree is because the system doesn't work, right? He's institutionalized, but the institution kind of turns a blind eye and, and they don't let him escape, but they don't make it as difficult for him as they should, right? That's a really interesting connection that you're making there. I, I'm, I'm thinking now this is a thread that we should continue to follow because um, there's probably fingerprints of it on a lot more of his movies as well. Oh, I mean, I think everything. Even Dark Star, right? Like his first film, you've got this <laughs> this uh, this intergalactic space crew and they're working for the government. I guess it's the United States government at that point far in the future. And right from the beginning of the film, you see that they're not being supported at all. And uh, and they are basically adrift on their own and, and not getting what they need to. I mean, we don't even really know what the purpose of their mission is is so it's like government doesn't work institutions don't work and uh, and it's up to the individual i think in in the carpenter universe i mean we talked about unconventional heroes before right like laurie strode and dr loomis and halloween um certainly snake plissken is uh is an unconventional kind of hero also um much like napoleon wilson he's a bad guy who uh who just happens to be the best man for the job it is so true very 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 interesting good good on you nick for uh getting beneath the surface here i'm a big theory guy i mean you know and and a lot of people would look at that and say you're you're projecting or you're reaching and that's probably true but that's one of the things i love about um just sort of film theory genre theory and auteur theory is you can find these little connections and if you like them stick with them you can develop them if you don't care well you know you can still enjoy these movies anyway or you can have your own interpretation of them but definitely i I see this real anti-authoritarian streak um really start to emerge in carpenter and in this film it's just really blatant i mean this is where it all sort of comes out and uh and comes to the fore yeah true that now did you know that this was um that there's actually a uh, Snake Plissken Chronicles comic book that was released. I did not. I feel like I need to check that out. <laughs> I was gonna say. Uh, I guess Marvel Comics uh, did the Adventures of Snake Plissken in January '97, um, and then in 2003, CrossGen published John Carpenter's Snake Plissken Chronicles, a four-part comic book miniseries. I 
I would kind of be interested to see that because, as I was saying on the last episode, I'd be very interested to know what the rest of America looks like in the world of Escape from New York, right? I mean, everything in this film is either set right outside of the city or within the city, and we don't really get a good... I mean, we know there's been wars, we know there's been corruption, we know a lot of bad stuff has happened, but, you know, are people still living normal day-to-day lives, or, you know, has everything kind of descended uh, to some degree into chaos and maybe that's fleshed out a little bit there but one of the things I do really really like about Escape from New York is we don't have you know there's not so much like extraneous world building that we get caught up in that rather than in the story that actually happens um you know, this is a very in-the-moment kind of movie, and when Snake is running away from these underground dwellers, or when he's sneaking into the train car to rescue the president or something like that, we're not really thinking about that stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're not sort of concerned with what's going on in the outside world, and, and obviously he isn't either, as he proves at the end of the film. Um, you know, again, he is this very in-the-moment kind of character. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that as well. Um I'm sorry, I have to mention this. I've been reading while you're talking. So, uh, we we mentioned the potential of a reboot of this movie coming out, which, when you th- when I think about it, and I think about all the movies that have gotten reboots at this point, like, this is kind of a, uh, it is kind of surprising that it hasn't happened to this movie already. Um, you know, I think it would definitely draw an audience... Um, I don't think it would make a ton of money, but I think it would, it, you know, if it was done well, done right, I think it would um, be a successful movie. So, uh, again, here referencing Wikipedia, in March 2017, it was announced that Robert Rodriguez would direct a remake of the film with Carpenter producing. In February, listen to this, in February 2019, it was reported that Lee Wanell will be writing the script. Um. Listen, if you've got Wanell Rodriguez and Carpenter collaborating on this, that could be a pretty badass movie. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a much more difficult movie to update or reboot than like Halloween was. I mean, the uh, the recent Halloween reboot, um, you know, it it made sense in terms of the overall franchise. It made sense as far as how that character uh, or how the characters of Michael Myers and of particularly Laurie Strode might have evolved since the original film. Um, I don't know that Escape from New York is going to work. Um, I, I think our attitudes toward things are different now. I think the the social climate and the political climate are so different now. I mean, I'm not saying they're better, um, but I'm, I'm saying they're different, right? Like the idea back then of crime becoming so bad that we have to basically forfeit an entire American city, and not just an entire American city, but the island of Manhattan, like, you know, the most expensive <laughs> real estate in the country uh, and, and turn it into a prison. I just, I don't know that you could find a way to tell that story in a way that's relevant now. I mean, you'd have to change so many things that I don't feel like it would be much like this movie at all, and uh, and I kind of hope they don't do it. Who plays Who plays Snake? In a modern, oh, wow, that's a, a very tough question. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing, right? Like, our action heroes are no longer really like that. Um, you know, we, uh, boy, that's a, a, a really, really tough question. I mean, this sort of gruff Clint Eastwood, like, you know what? Bring in Clint Eastwood. He's like 92 or something at this point. <laughs> Throw an oh, eye patch man. on him. Let's uh, let's do the old Snake Chronicles. That might be an interesting movie. No, I don't know. Wow. I mean, it's, uh 
I think it would be very tough to do it well, and uh, and therefore I don't think they should do it at all. Um, but also, yeah, it, like I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, the other review that I've been sort of focusing on of, of Escape from New York that is mostly critical is the Red Letter Media video that they did a couple of years ago. They did a review segment on Escape from New York. And uh, Jay, who's one of their regular uh, hosts of their, their YouTube shows, really likes this movie. And Mike, who is kind of another one of their central people, really doesn't like this movie. And I think he makes a few good points about it, but I just wanted to bring some of that stuff up and see what you think. Um, they consider this kind of a very very slow paced movie. And I know you said this on the earlier episode also, and maybe I'm wrong about this. Like I see this movie as having great pacing. I feel like I am always involved. I feel like the tension is always really high in this movie. And um, one of their criticisms is that this movie moves very slowly. And to illustrate that they've got this one shot where snake is just kind of wandering through a, a cityscape and there's really no one else in frame. And it's just this burned out city all around him. And then he takes a moment and like sits down in a chair right in the middle of, uh, you know, that's a garbage chair that's kind of strewn about with all the other garbage. Um, how do you feel about the pacing of this film? I think the pacing is fine, but I think pacing and action are like two different things, you know? So the pa- this, as far as the, the, the pacing and capturing my attention and keeping me interested in it, it's fine. But, I mean, there's really not a whole lot of boombastic stuff going on in this movie until the the second half of it, which is what I was trying to say before. Um, I mean, it's not like he's getting into any shootouts or any confrontations um, until much later in the film. The, 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 the setup, first we have the setup of the film, then we have him getting into the city, and then, yeah, you have him just basically, like, walking around trying to find something for a good point i mean it's 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 actually the scene um i think the first time we get any like real type of physical action in the movie is when um when that character um who was his wife there the chock full of nuts girl right when she gets pulled in the pulled into the floor and i love that sequence i was talking about that in the last episode where these underground people basically come through the floor and come after snake and he goes into the tenement he shoots his way through the wall he escapes out the window i mean that's a a real we're talking about cliffhanger serials before like that's kind of what that feels like to me but um you know everything leading up to he beats a couple people up before that he is attacked uh on his way to find where he thinks the president is and uh you know he's harassed by a couple of punks and he just makes really quick work out of them but i don't know i mean i I think there is excitement in everything here the approach into the Hmm. city on the glider landing on the roof of the world trade center and he almost muffs that landing and uh, and goes off the side i don't know i mean to me i feel like this is a really action-packed movie even though not all of the Hmm. action is uh you know fighting and shooting and and car chases and stuff like that you do get more of that later on um and i I think the bridge sequence is great i mean that is just a a really cool really kinetic action sequence that is filmed really well um the uh, at the end yeah that the the final action sequence Mm -hmm. and everything leading up to that uh you know you get the fight in the ring you get the stuff happening in the lobby of the world trade center I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is a very kinetic, very quick moving movie. But then, you know, just sort of uh, looking at some of the things in their review, I'm like, yeah, you know, there there is a lot of walking around here. <laughs> Too much walking. 
That's that's the uh, that's the blurb on the poster. Yeah, but I mean, I think walking can be very atmospheric in a film like this, right? Like it's shot mostly in wide shots, and we do just get a, a really good sense of the location and how foreboding it is and how run down it is. And even when there is nobody in frame, because it's shot so well and because there's just empty windows everywhere you're always expecting someone to pop out you're always expecting to see movement or you know you're you're kind of on edge the whole time like because there's this feeling and and a lot of that comes from the score also um this is a very atmospheric movie in an audio sense as well um there's a sense of imminent danger that i think just keeps my pulse up through this entire movie even when it's moving fairly slowly yeah i mean it's look i love the film but uh i can you know, I can see where where uh, these these folks are coming from with their critique to an extent. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, as as we were discussing the other day, you know, I mean, listening to music, uh, looking at art, watching movies, it's a completely subjective thing, and everyone has a different interpretation. Everyone has different tastes. Um, so I'm not surprised. Let me ask you a question because I've seen this come up in a couple of places and uh, and I'm interested for what your take on this is. I would argue that Escape from New York is not a movie that takes itself very seriously. Do you agree or disagree with that statement? Uh, I don't know, man. Um, probably not. Like th- the thinking of all the characters in the movie now and just the whole yeah probably not i think that again i think that some of the concepts for this movie are based on very serious and very real things that are happening in the world but yeah that i think the movie is um in a way almost kind of goofy a little bit yeah um and that i think was intentional Yeah, I mean, I think there's a satirical element to it. I mean, this is not a movie that, like, mugs and winks at the audience, and I really like that about it, right? And that's another thing. I feel like they would do in a reboot, and it would be very meta and self-reflexive, and I don't want that. But, like, there is humor in this movie. When we first see the Duke's car with the chandeliers and the disco ball and all that, I mean, you're not meant to look at that and think, oh, yeah, that's how people are going to live in the post-apocalypse. You're meant to think, you know, that's just a, a cool sort of fun thing to see, and it fits the character really well. I mean... There's some sort of outlandish, cartoony, comic book-like things here, but they don't, like, call that much attention to themselves either. Like, it's not a movie that just sort of, um, you know, like, nudges you and says, hey, look at that thing. It's like, if you want to see it, you can see it. Yeah. I, I, uh, I again, applaud you for pointing that out because I there, there's just a lot of things that I wouldn't even think about. Like, when I'm watching a movie, I'm just kind of trying to take it all in and you know what's on the surface and you know you asked me do you think do you think they were taking this movie seriously or do you think they were having fun with it with a more satirical aspect like I never even really thought of that before um and it makes me now apply that same kind of thinking to some of his other movies I mean certainly movies like The Fog and Halloween I don't think are have those satirical or goofy elements do i think those movies are do have more serious tone to them um but they're such different movies that's the thing it's like this was i think in many ways we're getting a lot of characteristics that you know we've seen in his other movies but in in other ways this is just like so much different and 
larger than anything he had done up to this point. Yeah, and I mean, it is a little bit sillier, not in the sense that it's bad silly, but it is, you know, it's uh, there is a humorous element to this that I don't think we get. I mean, Dark Star certainly is uh, is a satire and is humorous and presents itself as a comedy. But uh, but after that, you got Assault in Precinct 13, you've got Halloween, you've got The Fog. They're pretty straight-faced movies. Elvis is a very, very straight-faced movie, and uh, and Someone's Watching Me. His TV films are like that also. And then this one is, is him cutting loose a little bit and letting his freak flag fly a little bit mm-hmm. and uh, as we talked about on the previous episode uh, he wrote a more serious version of this and then Nick Castle came in and added some of the humor and the sarcasm and uh, and the wittiness that I think really just helps this movie along a lot and uh, and makes Snake Plissken such a memorable character like Snake Plissken isn't really a wit in, in and of itself but just some of the things he says and the way he reacts to situations um, you know there's, there's a cleverness and a humor to that like uh you know that president of what bit that we were talking about yeah yep um i think that this is definitely a very interesting point in uh in our boy carpenter's career here because um next is the thing am i right yeah yeah and um i've got to tell you that i didn't see that until um just a couple of years ago and that is actually one of the first uh carpenter movies that i saw or had seen i want to say like obviously everyone's seen halloween and we talked about our story our stories with that but as far as the uh trajectory of his career and the direction that he's heading. I mean, we're get, we're getting into like really dark territory here. And shit, shit's about to go down, Nick. It's about to go down. It's about to get it's about to get bleak. <laughs> it is. And and certainly even in comparison to this, right? I mean, this might be a darker movie just aesthetically, but the thing is is darker in every way. And uh, you know, um we were talking about like when we saw these movies, like Escape from New York was shown on television all the time when I was a kid because you basically could do an edited for TV version of this movie that still makes sense and still sort of captures what this movie is all about. You can't really do that with the thing because <laughs> You know, the the body horror and the extreme gore in that film, it just doesn't really suit itself to uh, to edited for television viewing. So I didn't get to that until later in life. Also, uh, I think I was like college age the first time I saw the thing, whereas I did have this background with things like Escape from New York. Um, much, much before that. So I'm, of course, The Thing is my favorite Carpenter movie. I'm very excited to talk about that one. But we should wrap up our discussion of Escape from New York. I mean, we've covered a lot. We've sort of been all over this movie and back again. But uh, is there anything else that we should mention? Oh, I I have one. Can I interrupt myself and uh, throw one thing at you? (laughs) Go right ahead. So in that Red Letter Media review that I was talking about, uh, one of the things they criticized, or or really Mike Stoklasa criticized, was the music. And and he basically said, you know, this synth soundtrack doesn't really work for an action film. So what they actually do in this video, and I disagree with him, I think he's wrong, but I think it's a really, really interesting experiment that they do, is they take a little bit of a fight scene from very late in the movie. It's Snake Plissken and the Duke, and they're battling it out at the base of the wall, um, right at the end of the bridge, on that sort of pile of garbage that they're fighting on. Right. And 
they showed that scene with the Carpenter synth soundtrack and then with a more conventional action movie soundtrack with like strings and a sort of orchestral accompaniment. And I don't think it was better. I actually, uh, you know, I don't think it really added much to that scene. It just made this movie seem like a more rote, conventional thing. And uh, and it didn't make the action feel more intense to me. I mean, it didn't really do anything for me. Whereas this synth soundtrack, I think it's just got this real driving quality to it. And, you know, we've seen so many filmmakers now embrace that as a way of just sort of boosting the excitement and the coolness of a movie. Um, you know, the, the one that I mentioned last episode is Drive, where without that amazing Cliff Martinez score, that film doesn't quite have the intensity and uh, and just sort of the detached coolness that it has. So, um I don't know. I, I think it's worth taking a look at that review and uh, and just seeing that comparison for yourself. And just it gives you a sense of how distinctive Carpenter's soundtrack work is. And and I don't know. I, I think this score is perfectly suited to this movie. I couldn't agree more. And I would like to watch whatever it was that, that, that you're referencing there, because that seems interesting. The fact that they would take the time to even do that is kind of cool. Well, I mean, they didn't exactly cut them together perfectly. Maybe it's just a question of, uh, you know, it's not music written specifically for that scene that they cut in with it. But, yeah, I mean, uh, like... (laughs) I love the things like what's great for me about Escape from New York is just the distinctive qualities of it. Right. Like we've seen a lot of other post-apocalyptic movies, but none of them look exactly like this. And a lot of that comes down to Dean Cundey and the wide shots and, and, you know, the ability that they had to shoot in an actual burned out uh, part of a city where, you know, my favorite shots in this movie are the ones where you can see a few blocks of city. Right. Um, There's one there's a great one like about midway through the film where you've got Adrian Barbeau and Harry Dean Stanton and and Kurt Russell and they're just sort of crossing a street and you can see like probably four or five blocks behind them and uh and the whole thing has this really great you know wet gritty just very damaged distressed post-apocalyptic look to it and I don't know I mean I I really I feel the atmosphere of this film so strongly and and in so many of those other movies you don't really get it all I mean this this movie was ripped off so many times like we were saying last episode and having seen some of those I think one of the biggest problems of those films is a lot of them just uh, set a lot of scenes during the daytime and it just doesn't have the same effect of of being this like I said kind of dark night of the soul portrayal of what a, uh, a dystopian future would look like i i couldn't agree more way to way to close it down nick (laughs) well what else what final thoughts on escape from new york uh i mean listen it's a movie that is definitely it's entertaining um it's it has a very it's 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 rewatchable like it has um replay value and I, you know, I think there's some comedy in it. Like it's, it's, it, it works as an action movie. And we, we talked about in the last episode how you can watch this in different modes. Like you can watch it and try to dissect it and get into the like deeper meanings of it. Or you can just watch it on easy mode and still have a good time with it. So I think overall as a film, it's a, it was a huge success. I think it's a, um, very crucial staple in in John Carpenter's work. It's probably one of his more beloved movies um, for his fans, and um, a a big step for him. I mean, looking at 
what he's done with film so far and just the work ethic that he's had and how much material he's put out in such a short period of time, uh, you know, to go from Dark Star to this um, in a five, six year window is crazy. Yeah, I mean, it really is a career where he's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, the the budgets are getting bigger mm-hmm. and the talent, you know, the, the breadth of talent is getting wider and the locations are getting more expansive. Like, I was comparing this earlier to Assault and Precinct 13, and I do think those films have a lot of things in common. And, you know, they're both isolated locations, right? Like, they are both action films set in a, a, a limited space, but the limited space in Assault and Precinct 13 is one building. It's really one floor of one building, if you want to really sort of uh, put a, a fine point on it. And this film, although it's an isolated location, your isolated location is the walled-off island of manhattan so you have a whole lot just uh, of a bigger canvas to work from and and you end up developing different types of sequences where you can uh, really take advantage of that you know there are car chases in this movie and they're really not in uh, in assault and precinct 13 so yeah i mean it, it's all kind of a, a progression upward in terms of budget and in terms of expansiveness and scale and scope i mean this is the first carpenter film we see that does world building as extensive as this movie does right i mean the the Fog and Halloween and Someone's Watching Me and, and Elvis, they are set in either our recent past or in the world that we live in. Um, Dark Star is that sort of far-flung future, but we don't learn too much about it. I mean, that's a really isolated location. Um, you know, I guess isolation is another recurring theme we could talk about in, in Carpenter Films, but with this one, there is much more of a sense of, of this whole other world happening around these characters and around these situations. And, you know, that definitely shows some progression also. Like, we're moving from these very limited, very personal kinds of stories to uh, to just a, a larger scale and a wider canvas. Interestingly enough, though, we move on next, not to something bigger than this, really, in, in a lot of ways, but to a much more isolated kind of film, which is the thing. <laughs> I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. Another, what a great excuse to watch that movie because uh, we are going to be talking about it very soon. <laughs> it's that time of year, right? I, I love, you know, I, I'm very seasonally sort of motivated when it comes to films and music sometimes. Like there's certain albums that I like to listen to in the summer and certain albums I like to listen to, you know, in the lead up to the holidays and stuff like that. And there are certain movies that really fit a certain time of year for me. And the thing is my winter movie. It's my go-to. Uh, I live in New England. We still have some pretty harsh winters here from time to time. We still get a pretty good snowstorm from time to time and uh, I have definitely watched the thing on one of those nights where we're just stuck in the house snowbound and it really just adds to the overall atmosphere and effect of that movie but that is another discussion for another day anything else you want to say about Escape from New York I think we've said it all I think we've done it justice in a in a movie about how justice doesn't really work I think we've done it at least some degree of justice so we will throw that out to you, our listeners. Have we done this movie justice? Do you have any thoughts about Escape from New York that we were not able to address on the show? Or just let us know how we're doing and what else you would like to hear. You can contact us via email at precinct13podcast at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at 13precinct. That is 13precinct. Facebook.com slash 13precinct. And our website where you can download all of our episodes and subscribe to the show is precinct13.simplecast.com. 
With that, we are about to head into the uh, the cold, cold winter of The Thing. We will talk to you in a couple of weeks about that. Another two-episode discussion of, of what we think is a really, really important film in the Carpenter filmography, and we're really looking forward to getting to it. Yeah. I can't I can't wait, dude. It's gonna be awesome. <laughs>